Hey, this is Alex Call, rolling down the American road. When I'm not on the phone with Jenny or listening to 8675309, I'm tuned in to the Jukebox Graduate. Thank you, Alex. Alex Call. You guys may remember him as being a uh, one of the lead members of Clover, the backing band for uh, Elvis Costello's My Name is True album, but they were also, in their own right, a, a pretty damn good band from the Bay Area. But the big thing that Alex may be known for, and you guys have this number memorized, he uh, he was one of the writers for uh, Jenny, 8675309. It's so- hard to say nine. <laughs> In just the regular manner. <laughs> right. right? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so here we are. Here we are. Dave Rayburn and Eugene Edwards, the Jukebox graduate. Thanks for joining us on episode 15. Um, so speaking of uh, 8675309, everybody get your phones out. We're going to do a little experiment here. We're, <laughs> we're going to call Raleigh, North Carolina. I mean, it's probably not the best time to call. I was going to say, they might have something going on. But, they hey, might, what but the let's, let's see if the lines are still up. Here's uh, 919-867-867. Five three oh nine. I called it last night, so they speaker. (laughs) So, in case you don't have Wi Fi or anything, you can't get to any of your your music, but your phone does work, um, you know, call up a song. (laughs) There you go. So, thank you, Alex Call. And we're going to be hearing from him later on in the show. We've got a, a track from his uh, his band, a brand new recording from American Road. So, Gene, sir, what's been thank happening? You, thank you for coming out here to of course uh, to the stu- to the uh, studio. I'm so glad, to speak. I'm glad there's a place to come to. Okay, I see what you're referring to. So, I uh, flew home from somewhere, and I really didn't have any sleep, and uh, uh, so I laid down, and then I get a phone call saying, "Hey, there's a big fire." And so I ran outside and yeah, just here with the, the two and the 134 intersect, um, big blaze, pretty exciting stuff. Um, much bigger in person on TV. It you know, doesn't look, we have, we get these. I've seen scary. It, it was, uh, yeah, no one was hurt. Uh, no, no property uh, was damaged. Uh, unbelievable. You know, and, uh, no lives were lost. So, good, so good. we're happy about that. It, it, um, the origins of the fire are rather unfortunate. Uh, there's a lot of menace involved. Uh, uh-huh. I don't like that part, but, uh, but we were safe. We were Good. safe. It's, uh, it's just a part of living out here. Right. Uh, as Harry Shearer said, you know, all these mudslides and earthquakes and wildfires are just a biblical shaking out of people who should just be living in <laughs> Wyoming anyway. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, we, and thank you. I, I actually got texts and phone calls from people that know where I, where I live and they were, uh, I, I do appreciate that. I yeah. really, really do. And, and, and my best wishes to all those along the Carolinas, uh, in Florida and, and uh, well, Coast. I guess according to our president, Alabama. even those in Alabama. Okay. Yeah. Even though that was a close one. Yeah. Do you have a Sharpie? There's a Sharpie. Well, I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, what, what uh, do we, what do we want to make bigger? <laughs> so, uh, well, our audience, right? How do we do that, guys? Spread the word. That's right. Uh, no, so, uh, so, uh, yeah, the the the, uh, the the house is safe. The family's safe. So, so yeah, so we're all fine. Now, what about you? Now, I know the last time the when we recorded the last episode, mm-hmm. you were about to go to Amoeba to see the Rockland Tours do an in store. 
Well, they were, the tickets were going on sale or the pre-order to get the ticket to go. And the ticket, the show was going to be, I think the following Monday or Wednesday or something, but like the Friday morning, people were lining up around the block for this thing. And uh, a friend of mine actually got there before I did and, and picked up our tickets. Ah. So we were able to get in uh, the following week and it was the Rockin' Tours promoting the sh- their new record. And the show was inside the store. It was inside okay. the store and there was a signing for a... Uh, uh, a certain number of the, the first people that, that pre-ordered got to get into the signing. Not everybody got into that. We didn't mm-hmm. get that. But um, we did see the show, and it was my first time seeing Jack White or, uh, or Brendan or the Rockin' Tours oh, or yeah. Yeah, any of them. So that was really a treat to see that uh, just for the price of buying the record. Yeah. Now, I'm also a member of the... Um, the third man vault uh, subscription service, which is a quarterly thing that oh. third man records does. They have like a special box that, that comes out four times a year focusing on one release and they do a lot of tricks on, you know, like the colored vinyl, a certain locked groove with like a, let's say an audience going crazy or something to where it just goes on forever. Um, they've even done a hologram on the, uh, the dead wax that really? if you hold it in a certain light, you'll see like a little angel spinning on, on one of the, uh, Jack White records. That's fantastic. And there's bonus 45s or pins and posters and tailor made for you. People like me. Oh, people like you. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and so I got the, the rock and tours release from third man, uh, the vault in advance and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that it's got a lenticular cover. The cover is sort of like one of those walk, don't walk signs. And when, so when you move the, the cover, <laughs> it changes. Right. And, uh, there's you know, just like with the Ryan Adams fans, they're like tearing apart the release to try to like find <laughs> hidden stuff. So somebody peeled off the lenticular uh, sticker on the front cover and just damaged their cover altogether. But under, I guess when you pull that off, mm-hmm. what's underneath on the cover is a mock-up of the Beatles butcher cover. But, oh, that's chill. But with the faces of the rock and tours on it. But there's people that just I pulling those that. off. Yeah, but, but that person was rewarded. They were. And that this per, one person at the show had that, peeled it, got them to sign the butcher cover part of it. Wow. And I looked at that. And I'm like, that's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Wow. <laughs> that is very impressive. Yeah. All right. So. Well, geez, that's... <laughs> That's great. That's great. I thought people are just going to be like, they're going to get these things and put, set them on fire. They're going to dunk them in water. They're going to see like, who knows what could happen. Well, I stopped looking online after a while. So, I mean, these things may have happened as well. I don't yeah. know. But, uh, but anyway, a really neat packaging idea. And uh, somebody took advantage of it at the show. And they, they sound great. The new record's really good. Well, I would imagine it's very gratifying to, to Jack, certainly, to, to see that someone's like, oh, you figured it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that was that was really. Oh, cool. have you seen uh, the uh, the Beatles the yesterday the movie not yesterday? Not yet, not yet. It's oh, on my list. There's like God. a handful of pictures on my list. Oh. And have you and have you seen the Once Upon a Time ellipsis in Hollywood? Not yet. Oh. I know. All right, never mind. There's there's that. There's the Blinded by the Light film. There's I just got yeah, the every, people keep sending me people keep sending me the trailers for that, and like like I don't know. Right. And it's like, what's, I, again, it? what's the, I'm just going to go and just cry for 90 minutes. So what's the, I, I'm almost talking myself out of, I don't know if, do I need to see this movie? I'll see it. I want to see it. I'll see it. But I you got to, you got to see this yesterday movie. Okay. It's so charming. Danny Boyle. I trust the director, right? First, first thing is I hear about the concept of the film or I saw a trailer, you know, earlier this summer and uh, I'm sure everybody, people are familiar, but the, especially listeners would be would know the, the concept is yeah. that this guy hits his head. Uh, current you know, 21st century, uh, he hits his head. Uh, he comes out of a coma, 
and uh, his, and he's a very struggling singer songwriter in, in London. And his uh, long suffering manager, this girl, told him it was so weird when you had your accident and all the electricity went out for a few, few seconds all across the world. But anyway, everything's back to normal. And then it comes to him that no one knows anything about the Beatles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he makes a reference in conversation. Uh, he, says, he says, hey, well, will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Right, right. And she says, why 64? And it, it, <laughs> he slowly cobbles together the fact that there has been no Beatles. Um, and that now we have our movie. All right. I wanted to jump up onto the rooftop, aim myself towards Hollywood and just yell, shame on all of you. <laughs> It's not a repackage of anything. It's not a sequel. It's not a reboot. It's not based on a board game. It's just this very clever idea. And they have to use uh, uh, an agreed, a currently agreed upon greatness. Yeah. Now, this is, this is not so simple. And right now, the Beatles are one of the last things that, for the most part, we mostly agree upon mm-hmm. is, yes, that it is great and it is influential. You, I don't know that you could quite make this movie... Based on Elvis, of yeah, you can't because he didn't too, write the yeah. song, so that right. that also kind of right. affects it. Um, I don't know that if if you'd done this song, I'm sorry, done this movie in the early '70s, maybe you could have used Sinatra. I'm just try and think of yeah. a musical act that is quite that universal. And I kind of, as we spoke about in the very first episode, or what we spoke about, as I prattled on about, pardon the preposition, in the very first episode of, of this podcast. We assume there are certain things that will be known forever, and history keeps telling us that's not the case. Mm-hmm. So you've got to make this movie now, <laughs> plus you can get the approval from the surviving. Well, I was going to say, too, like, isn't this like a, a, a just a nightmare of a, I mean, you've got this great idea, but then it's like, oh, the clearances. So they managed to, <laughs> yes, that is rough. Uh, and it's funny because um, one of the executive producers on this thing, he has a, his background is in the record industry in England, so he had some sort of passing relationship with Paul, if not Ringo. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but yeah, that was kind of the key. Also, you're not asking to get the original recording. That's right. So that helps out a lot. It's easier to to just get the licensing for the the publishing. It is. And I just want to say, and of course I can't spoil anything of the movie, but we know that that's the, the, and so the thing is, does this guy, maybe I should just sing some, what I know are Beatles songs, but no one else does. And then I can, See how that goes. And right. that's what the guy does. Now, what's great is that he's not a Beatle freak. He He's a singer-songwriter. He's probably born sometime in the mid-90s or and so. And obviously just touched by the Beatles, but not obsessed. That's the, that's, the, that's the funny thing is that, yeah, he's not obsessed. So, so uh, he starts thinking about the other songs, and he doesn't know them exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's got to. And then he can't, he can't ask someone, hey, How's the second verse you of Eleanor Rigby start? And no, say, I forgot, I forgot the lyrics to Piggies. How do I... <laughs> gets a phone call from Charles Manson. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, great movies when they have... It's a fantasy. The movie's a fantasy. Yeah. Okay. And when you structure a fantasy world, it's actually the realist... Oddly enough, it's the realistic details that you throw in there that help suspend this fantasy. So I love that the guy... He plays a, an, an errant chord in the long and winding road at one point. He's, mm-hmm. he's at the piano. It's it works over uh, under the melody. It's still it's diatonic, if you will. The note doesn't sound, but you immediately look. That's not the chord. But that's what Nobody makes it knows. so good. It, yeah. Well, no one else knows exactly. I'm sorry, just over modulated the mic. No one else knows. But that's what's so good. 
is that he's just half remembering it and uh, this kind of fits and um so i i love that aspect of it um once upon a time ellipsis in hollywood um tarantino there's a couple of things that he really really loves women's feet <laughs> shows up a lot in a lot of his movies All right and 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 uh, and this was referenced in the New Yorker review of, of this movie. Uh, and then just people driving in a convertible with music playing very very loud. Yeah. So um, what's great? Uh, one of the great things about this film is uh, they're just listening to KHJ all the time, oh, which yeah. is very accurate. Yeah. And uh, and you and I'm it's just kind of assumed again because the supporting details of this fantasy movie mm-hmm. are so accurate. In fact, at one point. The DJs just kind of, you know, promoing an upcoming concert. April fourteenth, the, the bubble. Frank Sinatra, Nancy Sinatra, you know, and and you get the feeling if I googled that date and Frank Sinatra, that show correct. probably would come up. Yeah, yeah, why why wouldn't it? Right. right. Um. Uh. And uh, the several Brad Pitt is fantastic. Leo's great. Uh. The cinematography is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I think Paul Revere and the Raiders might win this movie. Really? Yeah. <laughs> After you see about for like the eighth or ninth time, you kind of walk away thinking, man, I think, I think Paul Revere and the Raiders might just be, damn, I just conquered this thing. The, uh, the soundtrack, I, I believe so has the, the little audio bites from KHJ As in between some of the songs. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And I just went back and watched Reservoir Dogs and of course the oh, Stephen so Wright. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. K Billy super sounds of the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> and there's a, the, the, uh, the torture scene with the cop. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so I don't know if you do this. Maybe uh, maybe our listeners dance do around this. with a, a a blade like that. That was between just you and me. You okay. son of a bitch. Well, I'll give you the money, man. So so um, I'll do things like where a, a, a song, you know, the radio will be playing inside the house, and then I'll step outside to take care of something, and I'll come back. And I don't know whether I'm quizzing myself or not, but I'll be sitting <laughs> you got in to my get the head. Gas can. For, okay, <laughs> I didn't start the fire. Oh, <laughs> See, oh, so oh, this goes back to the last episode. No, he, no, no. Uh, so, um, so anyway, uh, and then I'll come back to see if I've kept tempo and if I come back into the house at the right oh, place in the song. Yeah. Do you do this? No. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Did you come and dance into the same pace? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'll be singing something to see how well I know it and see if I can come back. So when Steeler's Wheels is playing in that scene yeah. and he, yes, he goes out to the car to get the gas can. And then he comes back into the house or into the warehouse. Sorry. Uh, the record is exactly where, where it it's a be. perfect editing thing. Yeah. And by the way, the warehouse is just outside, just right there where I'm pointing outside this window. It was a, oh. uh, and it was a, like a, I was a mortuary. There's a bunch of coffins. And, really? and of course, Mr. Blonde oh, wow. sitting on top of a hearse, if you notice, because it really did just have a bunch of coffins. It was like an old warehouse. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and then they filmed the, the, uh, the heist, the the uh, the jewel heist is on York Boulevard, which is right down here too. So yeah, so you just you you, you know, leave and you go back in, and you kind of like, oh yeah, there's that song, and I love that Tarantino made paid attention to that. He's a very careful because when he walks, when Madsen walks outside, he's uh, you're hearing the outside, and you don't in, hear the music, you don't hear it, and then he walks back in, it starts creeping back yes. up in volume, and then you get inside, and it's exactly where it, it should be. So he didn't cut or anything. No, and, and it's just it. Yeah, it's a long shot, so it should, it has yeah, to match yeah. up. But and also, uh, I, I start. <laughs> there's a part. This is this is terribly dark. But when he's slicing the ear, yeah, you winced. Um, <laughs> it's actually one of the funnier things because the camera looks away. 
it pans up to the corner like oh and then it comes back and i just find that really really to me, really funny to me it's like the, the a classic uh the most effective horror technique uh where you don't see the detail oh, your imagination takes over and that's where it's like you know when i saw night of the living dead the original one, oh, george uh-huh. romero black and white one um there's a lot of stuff you don't see and a lot of stuff lost in shadows fantastic and to me that was the scariest effect but that's us i mean that's that's the human brain it's the things that we can't see and don't know that scare us the most and so that's the of course i watch all all horror movies as a as a you know as a skeptic atheist guy so it's just sort of to me it's sort of like i'm always looking for the rational explanation of what's happening here Mm -hmm. i think stephen king had said the difference between science fiction and horror is that science fiction provides the answer other than that there's really no difference right, right? right. Um, I know I was sidetracked on the movie thing but I'm just no, excited about that I think there's only two movies I saw in the theater this year and they both have very very strong similarities and and uh, I'm having a hard time finding people who've seen both mm-hmm. and have that conversation to have this conversation and you're I'm, I'm useless <laughs> I'm just gonna leave now no I mean that's on my list that's on my list of films and, and the uh, blinded by the light film and there's a couple things on my list that I just found out about I, I just got so, a, yeah what well, I just got a, a promo copy of the uh, Clarence Clemens film, hmm. uh, Who Do I Think I Am?, which was being produced, co-produced by Clarence prior to his death. Oh, I see. And it was sort of to cover his enlightenment in life ah. and, uh, and, and, and then all kinds of acquaintances, friends and family talking about Clarence and his journey from, you know, he, they got one of his childhood friends that uh, used to climb this big old tree with him uh-huh. and they would every day, like, you know, have a bet and race to see who could go the highest on the tree. And uh-huh. when their mom would call, they wouldn't answer because they weren't supposed to be up in that tree and oh. just to hear little things like he was, that. Uh, was that Norfolk, Virginia? I think so. Yeah. I was just there. Where are you? Yeah. Oh, I should. Did I, you see the tree? I should have done a little Clarence tour. Oh, next time. Jake's got a new record. Really? Yeah, we'll talk about okay. that. Okay, well, yeah, we'll get there. So the Clarence Clarence. Uh, so when does this come out? This documentary. Uh, it's it ran in the film festival circuit ah. for a little bit, and it just came out on DVD and Blu-ray. Oh, and I just got my copy, but I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. So okay. maybe I can report oh, well, then, back and on then that. Share or, it with me. So I'll, we can yeah, I'll get it, it to you we'll as well in October. But yeah, fascinating um, guy. There's another documentary. Oh, uh, is it the Bill Wyman one? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, the quiet one. Right, and it's not about George Harrison. Yeah, they've already done that one. <laughs> they've already done the course, one. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's a new film uh, called The Quiet One uh, about Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones who uh, left many years ago, but he was one but of the founding members. He, he did the Steel Wheels tour in the late 80s and then that was it, and right? And then I like think that 80, was it. 89, and he's he just gone. retired, yeah. So we're like, where's he I been? I can't do What's the math. He... Yeah. But we're almost He's probably been years. enjoying his retirement. Well, I kept, I kept seeing pictures of him. Like in a little floppy hat with one of the metal detectors out in this. I'm thinking, really? This is it, huh? This is what you're doing. Doesn't get much so better than British. this. What an old British dude thing to do. Right. <laughs> what do we do? Okay, so so is it all about what he's found? Yeah, it's all the stuff he's found in the beach. <laughs> bottle, on the, in bottle the sand. caps. <laughs> right. Quarters. Yeah. Um, no, it's. A, I, I guess the film is about his... Um, his time, well, his life, but I mean, uh, there's a lot of uh, focus on his time with the Stones because apparently he was the gadget guy in the band. And, and from what they're saying in the trailer, he was the first guy with a, a camera, uh, you know, a, a film camera, oh, even uh-huh. the first guy to have a computer and all this technology. And he was documenting all this stuff 
from inside the band, you know, over a bunch of these years. Uh And so there's this great shot I saw of him in this studio Mm -hmm. of his walls just shelves with all kinds of tapes and all kinds of film all the footage taken over the years everything he's got and he's sitting you see his back and he's sitting in front of a computer screen uh-huh. and it's almost like he's there editing oh. some of the stuff he's transferred and he's he's offered up a lot of his archives for this project i think <laughs> so whether you're a fan of the stones or not or a fan of bill wyman or not i'm just fascinated that a popular band from that period mm-hmm. 60s 70s 80s there are archives being shared so you can see a lot of fly on the wall type stuff. As most Stones experts would tell you though, of course Bill could had time to take all that footage because Keith was busy playing all the bass parts. Well, and also I don't think most part. Bill wasn't moving the television sets around, <laughs> right? It wasn't that Keith that was taking him to the balcony and yeah. yeah, but that's probably guess who probably he probably shot that. that. Yeah. <laughs> so we have that footage. That's right. So thanks, Bill. I hope. Yeah. I mean, are they going to cover the part where he's dating a fourteen-year-old or oh, that? I don't know. Now the reason I bring that up yes. is that I have been hearing, and I hate to go so dark, but that's what I do. Um, there's a documentary about Chuck Berry that's going to be premiering in early October at the Nashville Film Festival. Okay. I think it's just called Chuck or Chuck Berry. Huh? And I don't know what it's like. I don't know who's in it. I don't know how this thing's handled, but I, is this a good idea? <laughs> the personal life of Chuck Berry? Nah. <laughs> well, okay, so here's the problem. Not the problem. Here's the reality. Yeah. It's a documentary about a musician, uh, that existed, he mostly existed in the 20th century, but this documentary is going to exist for the most part in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Those are two very different centuries in a couple of ways. So if it's about the personal life of Chuck Berry, I wouldn't be happy about that if I were Chuck Berry. <laughs> it's like, thanks guys, don't do me any well, favors. He should say something. <laughs> he can't say anything. <laughs> now, um, I imagine it's probably not a hatchet job uh, by someone who thinks we should know all the terrible things that Chuck did to people. Right. Um, I'm assuming it's going to be some sort of nice reminiscence of hopefully his influence as a songwriter. Uh, you know how crazy I am about him as a songwriter oh, and course. what his influence. I mean, believe you're me. not alone. Believe me. But I also think that in this, well, the reality is that if you were to make a movie about what a great songwriter Chuck was and his great influence in that sense, then people are going to sit and watch this thing for 90 minutes to two hours and think, yeah, but the guy, but the guy, are you not going to talk about all this terrible stuff? And but the hidden cameras, but mm, the, uh, there's a lot of or just backing the guy up. No, hell, hell, rock and roll. The the movie from the eighties yeah. where we saw that we saw how difficult he was. We actually sure. saw some of the wackiness. Yeah, right. Um, I just I guess I'm asking what what purpose does this Chuck Berry documentary serve? And I don't know that I really want to sit down and watch this thing, mostly because of you don't want to taint. What, well, no, you know. I wouldn't say it's just that I already know too much. And so watching a movie is just going to highlight <laughs> the stuff that they're, that they're not mentioning. Yeah, it, I, it's, yeah. it's, I know there's, there's look, I did not watch the Michael Jackson, uh, HBO documentary thing. Right. I, I need to call it the Michael Jackson documentary. Or, or, I don't even know if that's quite fair to call it that, but I just thought I don't want to, I've only got so many sunsets left. I'm getting older, Dave. I'm on the back nine. You know what? I'm officially an old man. Here's how I know. Because yesterday I found myself for the second time in this calendar year parked outside of a grocery store waiting for it to open. Whoa. Yeah, that's a moment. Welcome. Yeah. So You're not gonna, even 50 yet, man. No, I know I'm going to order a chair for the shower and just get that nicely arranged. <laughs> um, so uh, 
I've been I'm, getting I'm, uh, AARP stuff in the mail. <laughs> so I, so, um, uh, oh, I got your Matlock fan club pin. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, great. it was yeah, for you. Thank you. So I'm just thank saying, you. I don't know if I want to spend however many hours watching this awful information about what Michael Jackson may or may not have done to these children. Right. I don't want to watch an R. Kelly documentary. It's like, I'm just not, I'm just not so sure I want to spend time with this. And then it gets to the point now where even if they make a, a documentary about Chuck Berry and it's just about how cool his tunes were, I'm sitting there thinking like, ah, man, I'd just rather listen to the tunes and not. Uh, mm. Yeah. I think Hell, Hell, Rock and Roll was enough. Um, <laughs> and I thought about that, too. I thought, well, you kind of got a sense if, of the guy. I don't know if you've seen the home video version of that, but... Um, oh, God, what a terrible thing to say. But no, that's a funny joke. Oh, oh, that's sorry, good. I didn't mean, to, I oh, didn't didn't? mean that, no. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, there's there's a DVD release. It's like four DVDs, and it's got all kinds of outtakes. Oh, really? But the coolest stuff on there, I think... Are the sit-down interviews, especially, there's a really long segment with Jerry Lee Lewis, who is just, he's had a few, and he's he's an open book. He's, he he's telling, like, no, nothing, no filter. It's so good. Because if, if, like, these two guys were in the same room together, oh. this conversation may or may not be happening, but it's just Jerry and the camera and an empty glass or two, and, and he's just... Just green light. Go. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. I've got to find that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, after saying all this stuff, I was like, now I do want to see that part. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, I, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's a, it's a new quandary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, I'm curious as to what the, now I did hear like, like his lawyers are in the movie talking about like the, I, I'm assuming the man act charges that put yeah. him in jail back in right. the early sixties. Um, so it seems as though it was like, Oh, is this going to be kind of a, a, a redefense and they're going to try and clean up and say it was all a big misunderstanding, then that's really going to insult my intelligence. Like, Oh, I don't know. Really? It's just, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, I just bring that. So I'm just putting it out there as discussion, drop us a line and, and let us know how you guys feel about this. Are you curious to see documentaries about extremely flawed musicians anymore? Um, does it help you? Does it harm you? Now the, uh, these, are documentaries, right? Because as opposed to the Rolling Thunder Review, which was, uh, I we'll mistook to it for a documentary. We've got a letter that we'll, I'll read a little later in the show uh, regarding that. But uh, but you know what? We've been, I've been yakking way too long. Let, let's, we should play a tune. Let's go to a song. All right.
Mama, Your Shirt's Too Tight by American Road. That's brand new music from Alex Call, who plays guitar, mandolin, bass, drums, keys, vocals, and produced it. Uh, also features Lauren Rowan, who plays uh, guitar and mandolin, Buddy Woodward on mandolin and banjo, and Billy Wilson on accordion, collectively known as American Road. Look for the new album soon, coming from Sun Valley Records. I like that. It has a, uh, you remember Rank and File? Yeah. It reminds me of Rank and File. Nice. That's a good thing. Anything that reminds me of Rank and File is good. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's good music being made still. Dave. Yes, sir. We have a guest. We do have a guest. There's a third person now sitting here. We do have a guest. Uh, we'd like to welcome a longtime friend of ours. Um, in fact, the three of us pretty much united about uh, what close to 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, worked together at the same uh, same venue. Uh, please welcome Carl Alvarez. Thank you. Thank you for coming, Carl. And Carl actually is coming back from a trip to to Santa Barbara. And as I told him, I'm impressed that you were able to leave Santa Barbara because I can't tear myself away from the place. It's so beautiful. It's it's nice. It's very, the flora and the fauna, the (laughs) atmospherics, it's, it's, it's It's great. It's, it's the great on the senses. Exactly. (laughs) Um, so, uh, now, uh, there's a specific reason we were having you here on, on this episode because something's going to, um, air, uh, on September 15th, I believe. I think so. So we're going to try and get this off as we have to get this episode out before that. Um, you have had a chance to see a preview version, at least of the Ken Burns documentary on country music. I have. Okay. Yes. So um, we're going to kind of get into the weeds of that in a, in a few moments. But uh, as I know that you're a very passionate music guy. Yeah. Three uh, geeks. We're going to. Yeah. Three geeks. Uh, ooh, we should come up with our own like power drink. Three. <laughs> geeks. One of, them, one of them energy drinks that I don't drink. Um, so um, I'm sorry. So Dave, you just went to the Hollywood Bowl or no, the Greek, the Greek theater to see Brian, which Ferry. I normally just go there to park because that's such a pleasant experience. <laughs> ah. So you went and saw Brian Ferry, Brian Ferry of Roxy music new uh newly inducted uh, rock and roll hall oh of yeah fame that's member, right yeah right? thanks to my advocacy yes uh-huh. it was you that pushed it pushed it over yeah, the edge just, you know, <laughs> thank just, you yeah. for that it's kind of but i've never seen it before and uh it <laughs> what i was stunned it was so damn good <laughs> it's really good now it? brian ferry is 73 years old doesn't matter Carl, back so from the i mean obviously roxy music comes out they're part of the glam thing right but he didn't Gussy up. He didn't go like Brian Eno far. Like he wasn't dressed like a visitor from another planet. Exactly. Right. You could see basically a structured suit and a very and a, and a um, uh, an a la mode haircut, if you will, uh, or, or of its time sort of thing. So um, 
So what he did, and then he quickly, he was probably still in his 20s, and just, every time he saw Brian Ferry, he was in a suit. And then, so now he's 73, and just still wears a suit. See what he did? It's almost like, like if you're, if you're 36, and you just tell people you're 40, God, he looks great. (laughs) Or dress for the job that you want to have, not the one you currently have. It's sort of that, it's sort of that thinking down the road. So now Brian Ferry, now, um, uh. Uh, gosh, this was maybe seven years ago. Uh, the wife and I, we were in Scandinavia. Uh, we were in Norway. And I had a day off in Oslo. And we go to this park, this beautiful park. Uh, and we're walking around. And uh, it's mid-afternoon. And, and we hear this music way off in the distance. And it seems like someone's playing instrumental versions of Roxy Music tunes. Mm. Um, uh, but quite loud. And it's echoing. you know. And it's like, a, and it sounds live. But mm. why would it be? And then... You actually hear Brian's voice hmm. sing half a verse, and then awesome. what is going on? So then uh, I, I I check uh, the internet and turn up Brian Ferry's doing a show What's that night here? there in Oslo. No kidding. So then I make a couple phone calls, and um, we've got tickets. We're in, <laughs> and it's an outdoor show. No, of course this is summertime in in Norway, so you know it, downbeat is probably at about nine forty five, almost ten. Mm-hmm. Sun still hasn't set. Mm-hmm. And so you go out, and, and Chris Spedding was playing guitar. Oh right, yeah, yeah, fantastic. So it's just this, as a rockabilly guy, this gets even better. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and yeah, and he just that guy Brian Ferry could do no wrong. Incredible band. If if it wasn't hit after hit, it felt like it because even the, yeah. the album cuts feel like the hits. Yeah, you know, and I, I haven't been like a huge, huge fan. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know the albums intimately. Okay. Um, I maybe know the album covers more I intimately. I say that. Right? <laughs> okay. But, but there's, there's the obvious hits. There's stuff that I was hearing on K-Rock out here in, mm-hmm. in, in oh, the mid-80s, sure. you know. That that he was being covered on there for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, so at the show, like, oh, I, oh, yeah, this one. I forgot this one. Exactly. I forgot this one. But then there was one song that absolutely floored me and laugh at me because like why don't you know this one dave but there's a song uh called in every dream home a heartache oh sure uh, turns out it's from a 1973 roxy music mm-hmm. right? yeah 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 and are you guys familiar with this yeah. one okay i was not so hearing oh, this live is this is my first listen of this song hearing Absolutely. it live congratulations to you there's a guy behind me that's just losing his freaking mind <laughs> at every line of this intro which is a really slow Mm-hmm. slowly paced almost almost spoken yeah. intro almost like an Iggy Pop style delivery you know and then um, and it just builds this this really interesting story about this guy with this mansion in the pool and the inflatable dolls and all this stuff and it's like okay this is and then it just kicks in and the lights are going nuts and I when that song was over I just looked at Shell and I'm like what was that yeah. oh my god and I it just occurred to me it's like why isn't this song on more goth playlists because it really has that feel. I mean, it wasn't a glam track or any or a real pop track, but it was just that little keyboard that's sort of eerily wavering in the background over the spoken part was just really creepy and it like made me feel good. You know, Carl, what's way. your relationship with uh, Roxy Music and Brian? Uh, the one with the mermaid on the cover, of course. Um, <laughs> he also, yeah, you man. know, you describe Eno perfectly and the <laughs> juxtaposition of Mr. Brian Ferry and the English gentleman that is the consummate English gentleman as such as Brian Ferry in his nicely tailored suits. Yeah. Um, and obviously, uh, 1987, what was the record in 87 that was on reprise? It got a lot of airplay. Very good record. 
my my, we'll my roommate Chris Josie used to play that a lot, along with Squeeze. That was kind of his playlist. Oh boy! So you go back and forth all the time. Oh, what a heavenly place to live! <laughs> That's a- and I think it was like maybe a year later we actually went and saw Squeeze at the uh, UCI. Oh, cool! With Ten Thousand Maniacs opening. Oh, cool! And uh, yeah, it was a great show. It, I have uh, a juxtaposition uh, on your on your Oslo trip. Please, please. Uh, Although I didn't get into the show. Bête Noir is the album you're thinking of. Yes, yes. Bête Noir is a great record. Um, we were in Graz, Austria with my wife and I. Mm-hmm. And again, in the summer, and we hear a little, little Marianne Faithful. She was playing. There's this kind of, you have to climb up where the venue is, but it overlooks Graz. Oh. And uh, she was playing that night. And it's always weird when you get into town, you don't get the lay of the land really right and you just start going into town and you're like observing <laughs> all these kind of things that are happening in in europe in summer is always a trip anyway because mm-hmm. there's always something going on yeah, it's you know the culture yeah culturally there's you're right there's always something going on yeah i'm sorry yeah, yeah. Interrupt, but oh that's the end of my story i didn't get into it very unfaithful but it's kind of on that caliber you talk about oh, brian much. ferry and you talk about marianne faithful oh, I you know it, yeah exactly there was, it was i've ever seen joe jackson in, in concert at the will turn and he talked about he's about to do a song that he he wrote for marianne faithful mm-hmm. and you know he sent the demo not knowing what was going to and then he got a phone call and it was, you know, this woman's voice. Hello, is this Joe? <laughs> goes, oh my God, it's her. And, goes, I, and she said, oh, I want to do the song. So then he, uh, so I think he kind of arranged it. He said, I had to, uh, you know, uh, he said, I had to raise the, the key for her. But he says, but not by much. <laughs> 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 uh, so, so Brian Ferry, yeah, that, I, uh, uh, everybody just run out and see the guy. It's a beautiful it's, night. Yeah, it, it, just a fantastic show. Um, and you're going to hear plenty of hits. And hopefully you will all be as surprised as I was to get just hit upside the head with a, did he a do, tremendous song. Did he do uh, Like a Hurricane? His cover of the Neil Young No, he did. Uh, he did, a, did he do Jealous Guy? He, he did a, no, Jealous? but he did a Dylan he, song. Which one was it? Oh, Tom, just like Tom Thumb. Oh, that's Blues. right. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's done a couple of Dylan songs. Yeah. Yeah. But did he do a whole Dylan record? I think that's where it comes from. Yeah. Called Dylan-esque or something or... <laughs> So uh, recently, um, there have been a couple passings in the music world, and that's happening all the time. You know, obviously, we had talked about this in previous episodes. Yep. You know, we're going to be losing our heroes left and right at some point. Um, but there are a couple sort of uh, independent underground type heroes that uh, that we did lose: uh, David Berman from Purple Mountains and Silver Jews, and uh, Neil Casal, who uh, most recently has been a member with Chris Robinson's Brotherhood and was part of the Circles Around the Sun group. As, as well as being his own solo artist mm-hmm. as well. Um, Circles Around the Sun was an interesting band. The, the concept of this, um, I'm a Grateful Dead fan myself. Um, a few years back, they, the Grateful Dead reunited for one last time to do a, a handful of shows mm-hmm. uh, called Fare Thee Well. This concert was called Fare Thee Well. Okay. And basically it was the last time the surviving members were all going to perform together, gather. And they brought on, um, I, I believe... Uh, Trey uh, from Fish, Trey mm-hmm. Anastasio was playing guitar. They brought in a few other members to augment the band. Um, and it was across several nights. Now, Justin Kreutzman, which is uh, Bill Kreutzman's son, that's a, one of the drummers from the dead. Oh, okay. His son is a filmmaker, and he's actually he's good friends with Tom Zimney as well. Makes sense. They're part of that circle. And, uh, and so he's been making films, and, and he was making some graphics, visuals for the audience in between sets and during the sets mm-hmm. of the Fare Thee Well shows. 
Um, as part of his project, he approached Neil Casal to say, hey, can you come up with music to go with these visuals while people are loading in or in between the sets? Now, correct me if I'm Neil was a longtime member of Ryan Adams' Cardinals? Oh, he was part of the Cardinals, too, yeah. So, I yeah. mean, so Neil would... And then especially that Cardinals, remember the Cardinals era was very... Oh, yeah. Grateful Dead-ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Neil knew that stuff very, very well. Oh, yeah. Just as a style, and it, and it just, it, he's a, it's a very organic uh, notion that Neil would be involved in this Grateful. I just want to help provide some context oh, for yeah. those that don't yeah, know much about Ryan's Neil. a Dead fan as well, yeah. and he actually had some sessions about a year ago with Bob Weir. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely a Dead thing going through their veins. Um, but so back to the circles around the Sun Band, it's like, well, Neil said, okay, and he recorded a bunch of instrumental music that was basically doing this reminds me of some of the work you've done in the, the studio work you did in the past for playboy for some of the videos where they would ask you like oh. we need something prince like but don't do too much prince <laughs> you know yeah, like get, get us close but don't get us sued oddly enough yeah. one of the notes <laughs> oddly enough one of the notes we get all the time was the, the injury was like, um just it's basically just it's just avalon by yeah. Roxy Music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like, oh, got it. Avoid any major thirds. It, like, you know what that means. You're like, in terms of skills, like, oh, okay, I think I know what you mean. You know, play like Phil Manzanera and, and you can get out. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it, it, it gives the same vibe that the original would have and without having to pay for the licensing and all. It's reality. So what Neil was doing was he was touching on a lot of like hallmark moments in the dead's catalog throughout these songs. Mm-hmm. It would be a lot of original stuff for sure. But then it would get to one little passage that would riff almost, on almost a quote. It would or, riff on fire on the mountain or sugar magnolia or something mm-hmm. here and there. And you, it, the fans would just kind of light up like, I know this. Oh, you know? Cool. <laughs> and it gets them like really excited for this music they'd never heard before. And, and so anyway, he, I guess he submitted about four or five hours worth of original music. <laughs> they said, great, just double that and we're good. <laughs> and all for the sake of not putting out an album, but just to be the house music. It's great. You know, and, and it was used. And then sure enough, uh, within the next year, they, they released a bunch of the music on a, like a record store day release oh. and it's on Spotify now so people can enjoy it because word got out like, what the hell is that? Where can I find it? Mm-hmm. And there was the demand. So some of it got out. So I, I really enjoyed hearing some of that stuff, but, um, you know, circling back to the, the story here, uh, David Berman of silver Jews, Neil Casal of, uh, fare thee well, uh, circles around the sun, Chris Robinson, brotherhood rock and mm-hmm. rock Cardinals. Cardinals. Um, these two guys, uh, recently committed suicide oh. and depression or what, whatever the situation may have been. Um, it's, it's really a, a heavy topic. We've talked about it on the show before. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's always, there's always people that will listen, always people that will try to help and because everyone needs to be here, you know, or yeah. everyone's worth keeping around. Uh, so what I wanted to do is pass around the, the phone number to the national suicide prevention hotline, 1-800-273-8255. You know, so if if there if there's something that's really bringing you down, if there's if you feel alone, if you feel an emptiness and, and no way out, please reach out. Reach out to that number. Reach out to somebody. You know, family, friends. It's it's too easy to fall. Just don't don't give up. So yeah, some of the, so, something I would say about that too. I I think the world we live in is is a big cause for us to be more isolated. You think. With technology, it's going to bring us together. Mm-hmm. But what it does, it feel it does make us feel disenfranchised from the world that mm-hmm. we're we're so connected on one level, but we're so disconnected on another. So correct. Um, 
And I think, but here's the thing. This is, I prefer, I mean, we, we can, we can talk about the technology itself and its effects on us, but at some point we have to take our own personal responsibilities for how we use said technology. We are using said technology via this podcast Mm -hmm. and Dave just took the opportunity to offer help. He just spun this whole thing, this, yes, very, very alienating technology and said, no, not this time, not on my watch. So <laughs> um, it is it is still incumbent upon us to run the machines, not vice versa, um, not to get too science fiction about it. Uh, and then they're telling kids also what's happening in this day and age, though, uh, perhaps not coincidentally, is I find and I think we sp- I don't know if I spoke about this too much on the show, but <clears throat> when it comes to suicide, as a culture and as a society, I think we have the most healthy vision of it in response to it that we ever had, at least in my lifetime. It was, I was a kid. It was, someone committed suicide. There was kind of this, almost an anger at the person who committed the suicide. You know, I mean, I'm just not the most lovely things were said about the person. Um, and, uh, and nowadays I think our more and more, our reaction is such as Dave's. Here's the hotline. Here's the number. You'll see that on social media all the time. The news will read off that hotline because we can't get that person back. So all we can do is be preventative. Also, uh, like I said, I think I did speak about this when, um, geez, it was either Chester from Lincoln Park. Yeah, or, that's what it was. Yeah. Um, is that we think about their family, their immediate family and their loss. And let's just so, show some compassion for those that they did leave behind because, um, you know, it's, I, and, and, and I say hail the hypocrisy of the church. Uh, According to doctrine, the Catholic Church cannot bury someone who commits suicide. I think the theory there is that because you've taken God's decision out of God's hands and that defies the church. But more in all churches, they don't deny the burial. This family, they've been members of our parish for 17 to 20 years. And we're, we're going to hurt them now that they just lost it. No, we're not doing this. So good. And I'm just saying as an example of how our humanity is taking over in these situations, um, that is a... Uh, an important part of, of our development, I think as, as, as people as well. So, so yeah, there's always a, you know, there's always, there's always hope. Yeah. And yeah, there, I I came across a a video on YouTube. It was making the rounds on social media a few months back, but it was following, but it was following the death of, um, the guy from prodigy. Uh, I forget his name. Oh my God. Flint. There you go. There's a video of, uh, John Lydon, Mm -hmm. uh, coming in or coming out of a venue with his manager at his side, you know, and he's not the most approachable guy to begin with, you know, um, and he always has something kind of, you know, brisk to say and whatever. So he's, he's walking past this uh, fence where there's fans and stuff that want to maybe get a photo, get an autograph or whatever. And they're off in the distance, kind of walking past ignoring as they probably normally do. However, somebody uh, yelled, uh, his name, his name, uh, and um, the prodigy, you're right. Mention, mention his name, I guess, to try to like, you know, what do you, what, what's your opinion? What do you think? John made a beeline right to the fence and came over. And I, th- I thought, Oh, he's going to like strike this guy or something because they knew each other and they were, they were pretty close. Oh, I see. And, um, and basically he just looked right at the person that was holding their phone, capturing this and just said, listen, if any of you, any of you out there are having trouble, if right. you're having problems and you're thinking like this, Call me, find me, talk to me, wow. come find me. And this is, you know, this is original member of the Sex Pistols. That, Who you know, lost a friend. Right. To, yeah. Right. And, and, and here he is so emotionally um, engulfed in, in this particular story mm-hmm. that 
he's just offering the random viewer that's seeing this video, yeah. like just saying, listen, you don't have to be alone. Mm-hmm. I'll even take your call. You know, that's it's sort of tough. Thing. I mean, you know, and of course, that's a scary responsibility to take on uh, for anybody to take on. But it's like it's worth a shot. Now, I don't know if you've seen have either seen the new Dave Chappelle stand up on Netflix. No. No? OK, uh, it opens kind of on this topic. And, and don't forget, it is hard for those of us who are on that side of the darkness to really understand, you know, the empathy is it's tough. It's tough, you know, and the dichotomy of, and we see people and they have these great jobs and it looks like they have this fantastic life and to them, they don't. And there's other people who have not such great lives and the thought never crosses their mind that they would ever end their lives. Mm -hmm. So there's a chasm, but, but our jobs here, um, on the time that we have is to, is to do what we can to kind of, to fill that chasm. Um, so, so, so thank you for, uh, oh, give the number one. Yeah, let's give that again. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. And so now for our song list for this episode, I have a request. I want, uh, what's the, uh, a little bit of everything by Dawes. Okay. First verse in particular, and then also anything by Alan Vega's band, Suicide. All right, I'll go Except for Frankie too. Teardrop. I think we already did Frankie Teardrop. <laughs> that's, a, that's a rough one. <laughs> that's a rough one. <laughs> okay. So back to the bubbly topics. Mm-hmm. Um, just this past week, uh, well, as we're recording this, it was within this last week, you appeared uh, again on Fender Play Live. Yeah. Do you still play guitar, Carl? I do. Yeah. Probably more on What do you hobby. have laying around the house? What do you have? What, what uh, I just have? have a Yamaha acoustic. That's generally where <laughs> don't I... Don't say just. <laughs> don't say just. Okay, so which... Because growing... I don't know if, if you were like in the 70s, uh-huh. growing up, a lot of households had, had that Yamaha... I can't remember the, 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 the number. It had the, the orange label on the inside. Mm-hmm. That it was just it was basically their co- their copy of the of the Martin D twenty eight, but because it was Yamaha, it was more affordable. This was the one you were allowed to play, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> like you went over to your cousin's house and said, "Yeah, you can play this one." And so I have a a, a sweet spot for Yamaha acoustics based uh, on that alone. This kind of uh, has a yeah. So and they make good guitars, really good guitars, <laughs> in fact. Yeah. So, but yeah, I did a thing. I've been doing a lot of work with Fender this year. I've been very lucky that they've been asked uh, they've asked me to do demonstration videos and. Um, and then they do a live, a Facebook live broadcast every Wednesday out of their, their facilities in Hollywood. And they'll, it's like a lesson or an overview of a, of a genre or a subgenre. So I did country earlier this summer. And then on, uh, well, two days ago, I guess we did, uh, Bakersfield specific, you know, subgenre of being Bakersfield. So we, we brought out a bunch of telecasters and, uh, um, kind of, I kind of went over some of the basics of what makes the. Bakersfield guitar sound what it is as opposed to a lot of stuff that came out of Nashville or wherever. So you go to YouTube, I guess you look at Fender play live Bakersfield, that search should probably bring it up uh, the replays. And then we did a little, now here's the, here's the thing because uh, it's, it's, it's 30 minutes and by minute 17, I'd already gotten tired of myself. Does that ever happen? <laughs> So we had trivia questions. I had trivia questions because they're trying to make this thing interactive. Right. And so I asked a few Bakersfield related trivia questions. Um, and then they had like stump Eugene section. So people could ask questions and uh, this is going to sound terrible. I don't know if this sounds terrible. Or not. I threw the question. I felt, I felt like such an annoying know-it-all at that point in the show. And, and I just realized, but that was, it was really dishonest of me to pretend like I didn't know the answer. So my apologies to, yeah. But, and it was a great question. It was, a, and it was, I, I think the question was, well, I don't know. The, the answer uh, is Merle Haggard. 
Oh, who named the buckaroos? Yeah. Who came up with the term yeah. buckaroos? Yeah. But at least it, well, at least you didn't throw the uh, the question about uh, the song that Dwight and Buck recorded together. Since you do play it every night, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also, there was another thing. See, this is one of the things. Are, like, I need I need to learn how to gracefully correct. I'm I'm not good about this, and so I kept my mouth shut. Because at one point they they threw to a video saying that Buck Owens used a thin line Telecaster. Not to my knowledge, I had no, I've, and 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 so I just tried not to react to that. I thought, well, I don't want to correct this guy live, and or I don't know how to graciously. When do they this. cut back to you, your chair's empty. You've walked out. <laughs> just, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've got, I've got a. I'm just, I'm just telling you, I, I need to still learn how to impersonate a, a full grown person. You're doing okay. We're gonna let you out into the wild pretty soon. <sighs> It's like the Truman Show or something. <laughs> You're in a bubble. <laughs> yeah, um, but no. So, so thank you to everybody at Fender. There, it's it's so much. Oh, and then my buddy Chris Masterson. Oh from, yes, from the Mastersons, That's and right. he plays with Steve Earle. He happened to just uh, pop over uh, that afternoon, and he came back with a, a 1958 Telecaster he'd bought in Nashville. I think that guitar had been owned by John Osborne of Brothers Osborne. I think that was his. Uh, anyway, there's only so many of those guitars laying around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had him come in and kind of like. Just crashed the that party cool at the very surprise. end. Yeah, it was like, and I really never get to play with Chris. So that's the closest thing. Yeah, because <laughs> you know, if we're we're always backstage chatting, but you you don't think to grab guitars and yeah. do anything. So that that was a, an absolute pleasure because he's he's a he's just a monster player. So hopefully, uh, we'll do another episode there at Fender Play Live. Uh, hopefully with Chris and, and myself. Now you can find those on YouTube. They're archived. Yep. Or I assume on Facebook, is, uh, could you replay it on Facebook? They're probably on there too. And, know, and maybe through works. Fender's website, which I do not have that. Oh, just handy. go to YouTube. It's fine. I think but the YouTube's Facebook live ones, I think they last for like 30 days archived oh, and then they go away. Mm. At least that's what I think. Okay. So see, look at that. Carl's not alienated by this stuff. No. He's <laughs> on top. Finger on the pulse. So, so yeah, so it's nice. So um, obviously with, with being playing with Dwight and, we, and there's still a chunk of Dwight's show that's reserved uh, where he talks about Merle and there's a chunk where we still reserve for Buck and so I do get to play that music on a very mm-hmm. very regular basis and the more I play it the more I love it mm-hmm. uh, and the more I, I learn about uh, that music and the stories behind the songs uh, and and how those records sound and why they sound of course we and the, we often record at Capitol Records where those records were made so it gets it gets it gets closer and closer. It gets more personal. Um, but speaking about country music history, this is a segue, Dave. Yeah, here we go. Carl, buckle up. You've you've seen portions of a seen the whole of, thing. You saw the whole thing. That's why sixteen two hours. hours. Oh, 16, sixteen hours. Okay, so <laughs> Ken Burns. This is why Ken Burns has the same haircut. He's too busy <laughs> to change hairstyles. Um, the, uh, the, and what is the actual proper title of this documentary? It's country music. Ken oh, Burns country I'm music. I remember this. All right. So I don't even know how to begin. What can you, what's the overview? You give, I mean, you saw 16 hours of this. So, well, the best way to put it is to pull out some anecdotes. One mm-hmm. of the anecdotes is when people ask about country music, it's three chords and the truth. This is kind of springs up throughout throughout it and it makes a lot of sense uh-huh. considering uh country music's gone through quite an evolution over the years and and but what it really covers is everything from the carter family all the way through garth brooks and johnny cash i mean mm-hmm. they're johnny cash final days oh uh, i see yeah I see. but you know the, the the usual suspects of the hank williams juniors and the johnny cashes and you know a lot of the key players, even Dolly Parton, mm-hmm. Loretta Lynn, 
they're all covered in a, in a very nice way. And it moves obviously through a timeline. Um, some of the things, one of the things I really walked away from obviously learning a lot more than I already knew, but actually it's very, very accurate in the sense of describing the time of these artists and Mm. when they came out and are we talking post-depression or pre-depression? Are we talking the Grand Ole Opry? Are we talking about radio? All these factors that built country music Mm -hmm. and really country music was started out with coming from immigrants, basically bringing instruments from (coughs) different parts, all parts. If you think even down to the banjo coming from Africa. Yeah, Yeah, I did see a clip about that and wow. So bringing it all together, Mm. the first episode's called The Rub and The Rub is in reference to we were all seen as different groups of people and we were also told that no, we shouldn't talk to them Mm. we shouldn't associate with those people or these people but secretly people were coming together and, and it went because of music, you know? So these instruments, these stories, the culture that was coming from into America mm-hmm. really is kind of the flashpoint for what country music started out as is really kind of a simple, simple man's music, but yet a storyteller music, yeah. uh, a, a listener, a, a communal type music that yeah. brought people together. So, that's where things really start off and where it starts to get contours, um, where the players come in, obviously the Carter family, AP Carter, uh, Sarah and Mabel were really come up coming with these songs and AP Carter would just go out and pull these songs from. Different yeah. So the, as I understand, AP was himself was not the best singer or even quite a musician. Not, you can't comp- And who can compare to Mabel at that point in right. terms of just influence and guitar. AP Carter reminds me of, John Phillips in the sense of just that that figure, that figure that is obsequious to the whole spear of, of, of the AP Carter was a perfect example. Yeah, but you did the legwork though. Yes, exactly. uh, There was, he had a traveling companion too, uh, whose name I can't remember. Um, Yes. And he's mentioned in it. Yeah. And and so they actually, they, they talked to them as talk of them as song catchers, basically. Yes. Early A&R men pre-publishing companies, mm-hmm. pre-record company. I mean, they were basically A&R guys. And by the way, yeah. a, uh, um, perhaps not insignificantly, you've got a, a, a AP is a white guy, his traveling companion is a black guy, and they're traveling in rural parts of America catching songs. I mean, there's something poetic about that. I mean, it wasn't, it's just, just how it was, mm-hmm. but, but I, and I just, I'm, I'm always fascinated that that would be a movie, a what if movie, just like kind of a, what's it like for these guys to travel through America in the late twenties? Um, I mean, there's almost like a Huck Finn feel about this sort of thing. And then there, and I love, and God, what, what a great title that'd be song catchers. <laughs> mm. There mean, you go. There I you think go. there's that, something there's there. Movie. I'm sure so, somebody's going to take it and Danny Boyle, it. give me a call. <laughs> so, um, so yes, yeah, so so uh, and so the I love that it's the first episode is called the rub, mm-hmm. and it kind of makes it seem as though there's a it's not so much a tension, but it's a bit of a Big Bang theory, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That that once what's the Bristol recordings uh, once they're in, in Tennessee and everyone comes to that hotel, what was it twenty five bucks a song they'd pay you? Yeah. Really? The idea that people would come from near and far, they're bringing their songs, but they're bringing their stories, and this is the first time that we're going to hear it. now. Uh, I, I'm curious if I'm jumping around 
pardon me, but I'm always fascinated in television's relationship with country music. Because I think country music is one of those things that benefits. Its relationship with television has been a very, very important part of its appeal. Um, we talk about fan fest and things like that. The country music always mm-hmm. work really hard to make sure its stars are, are accessible. Right. Uh, in person. Connecting one on one. And yeah, and meet and greets and something like things like that. It seems like country music always had a very strong presence on television. As where rock and roll had, you know, you know, Ed Sullivan things, and of course mm-hmm. the Monkees had a series. But, but uh, it seems as though like a lot of country stars hosted their own variety shows. Oh yeah, Porter Wagner, uh, Roger Miller, Glenn Campbell, uh, Glenn Campbell, and you had Hee Haw. You know, mm-hmm. you, all of us here grew up in the television age, mm-hmm. so that's kind of, I, th- I can speak for myself. That's yeah. where I started with country music. Yeah. Hee Haw was a prime Hee-haw. example. Yeah, See, that was my first exposure to Buck Owens. I didn't know that there was this. I mean, I just thought it's the friendly guy on that television show right, and right. until I think I saw the cover of the live uh, uh, at Carnegie Hall. At, and I thought, whoa, what's going on here? And then you play that record and they're just vicious. <laughs> so. Yeah, so there, there's that. And of course, the Johnny Cash show was just, mm-hmm. it oh, was yeah. just groundbreaking in yeah. the sense that he, Johnny just did what he wanted to do. Hey, if you detect some country blues picking in the song you're about to hear, you're right. Played by one of the finest musical groups in the world. Welcome Bobby Whitlock, Jim Gordon, Carl Radel, and Eric Clapton. Derek and the Dominoes! And he brought in a wide, I hate to use the word swath, mm-hmm. but it was a wide group of people yeah. coming from different areas, but the commonalities were the same. Two musicians coming together and telling stories mm-hmm. and sharing songs. And that's the beauty of country music. You get to see it more. You take it less for granted than what's presented to you in the general sense of how we might view country music. Yeah. So there's a lot of that that's shown. Um, they did devote a lot to probably more Johnny Cash, his television show, compared okay. to like Glenn Campbell, which I'm more closely associated with. They didn't give enough time to Glenn Campbell, but that's okay. Yeah. There's a lot to mm-hmm. cover. There's there. so much material. There's so yeah. much material to cover. So, But they did touch on, on Glenn Campbell. And yeah. I mean, for me, Glenn Campbell is just like, that's for me where country music really starts in my, you know, where I start with I country see, music, yeah. you know. I see. You know, so... Uh, television, powerful, just like what uh, Dave was talking about. The the medium itself was uh, mm-hmm. was a powerful too. I think radio obviously was the predecessor, yeah. And mm-hmm. the power of radio, um, and even going so far as the, the the radio station near the Rio uh, in Texas. Oh yeah, because yeah. that uh, well, just the power, the the range that that station yes. had. Yeah, exactly. there's a lot of talk about that and. and these radio shows were always hosted in the sense of selling something, whether it be insurance or flour right, or right, flour. this guy in, the, yeah, in Mexico. I'm, I'm sorry with all the names. There's sure. a lot of people to kind of remember in this whole thing. But Mexico was it, it was was selling uh, um, male enhancement <laughs> remedies, <laughs> sure. folktale type mem- remedies uh-huh. and stuff. But uh, amazing the reach that it would reach Johnny Cash. It would reach Chet Atkins. Mm-hmm. It was amazing how far and wide Reach that... Reach Ray Charles. Oh, yeah, Ray Charles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you would imagine somebody who only had radio as well as somebody not able to buy records anymore because 
they cost too much. Right. And these radio shows had, you know, um, variety hours, basically. Mm-hmm. So it was the predecessor to what we would probably see on TV as the TV variety show, you yeah. know? Yeah. If you think about, like, how uh, you know, the difference in technology now compared to back then. You know, families back then didn't have... TiVo or, you know, the internet or anything like that. So Saturday night, they would all gather around that little radio. You got that one shot. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be there. (laughs) All your chores have to be done. (laughs) And then you, after supper, you gather around and you tune in to what? Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. You know, any of these shows that are broadcasting these, these, uh, these live events, like, you know, like Mm -hmm. what the Louisiana Hayride used to do as well, all these broad localized broadcasts. And that was uh, a great way to reach people that, uh, weren't able to get out. And that just kind of widened the path for the growing genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, another thing that you walk away from, obviously, like I said, the, 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 the usual suspects that we all know in country music, but really the unsung heroes are really brought to the forefront, whether it be Gus Cannon or D4 Bailey, who brought the harmonica and the train mm. sound to the Grand Ole Opry. in country music when you're talking trains which was the the people worked on the trains yes. people built the trains and that was the golden age of of the Pacific Railroad and mm-hmm. and the sound would go through these towns and they would reflect their it would be incorporated into the music so much and there was this real connection and connectivity when it came to that so right when we, as musicians we talk about a train beat Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that, that musically use your instruments and the way you play them to s- help sort of emulate the landscape. Mm-hmm. The sound of a train coming through town mm-hmm. would be essentially a shuffle with a, I guess, harmonic would be the, yeah. Or, and then there's certain guitar bends that also kind it's of. It's a perfect metaphor that. because it brings people together of all types of people mm-hmm. and, a, and a very, before cars, before transportation, it was the beginning of transportation. Right. So yeah. bringing people together and that sounds really important. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, the unsung heroes, I really liked enjoy, even though it was short, uh, the nudie suit. (laughs) When I first heard about the nudie suit, I thought, are these guys just wearing suits that are just the color of nude? (laughs) But no, I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole vibe. Yeah. It's funny. So, uh, I I don't tell this story out of turn, but, uh, as I mentioned, Chris Masterson crashed the, the Facebook live thing and he says, Oh, I've got something to show you. And he, he shows me a picture of something that he had bought um, via an estate sale in Nashville. It's a 1961 suit, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's by Turk, who was um, one of the original tailors who made those those suits. And of course, um, people ask me about the jacket all the time. Uh, was, I think Dwight calls them the State Fair jackets. Oh, the one, yeah. Um, the and, uh, you know, part of the that, that was uh, you're playing in smoky bars. There's not really good lighting, so you kind of did what you had to you so, you stand be, out. so you could be seen in the corner of a sure. bar. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting, uh, you know, thing that, that country and fashion have always, always had a relationship just like, and it's, it's funny cause we get very, I mean, the question is, is this 
is this real country music? I think like, I feel like that question has been asked since 1927, if not before, <laughs> since, since yeah. country music has been recorded and, 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 and broadcast someone somewhere in the room asked that or says this ain't real country. And as long as people are still asking that question, I think it's actually a healthy thing. I think it, it shows it that continually it's, evolves. It's, it has to. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It seems like the, the, the surface there's an, it evolves, but the, 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 the roots of it stays the same. That's right. In that sense, it's always going to change and evolve. You see this with the, the country music association really coming together because they really had to fortify because country music kind of lost itself mm -hmm. after a certain period and these people knew in order for our music to survive we really had to unify in, mm -hmm. in a way and nashville was really the place where that was already taking place so they built the country music uh, association and mm -hmm. you, you you see that development these radio programmers really coming together and unifying the music in in a sense that it wouldn't get lost it wouldn't be left behind because the Beatles were coming on the scene. Yeah, Elvis had already kind of struck on his own. Who he's talked about in this too as, as well he because be, of yeah. that. he's very important in that. Also, Sam Phillips and the producers, Owen Bradley. Mm -hmm. You get to see again unsung heroes that are important to the shaping and the 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 molding of this type of music. And of course, the musicians that are involved. They talk about the A team, oh, obviously. Cool. Gave them Great. gave them their their praises because they were essentially important. Really, the unsung heroes, the people you really didn't hear about or mm -hmm. know about, and they're covered in there, which is great. I love that stuff. The studios in Nashville, um, trying to get a record deal, <laughs> what it meant for people, and how far they had to go. Chris Christopherson is is in that kind of zone too, you know, sure. because he's he sees Johnny Cash for the first time. Uh, the Grand Old Opry, and uh, he's like, man, I, I'm getting out of the Army or Armed yeah, Forces, that, and that changed his life, obviously. And working with the producer that uh, he gave him songwriting credit for, me and Bob, Bobby McGee, uh -huh. he's, they talk about that story, uh -huh. which is great. And that one song just changed everything when Janis Joplin got her hands on mm -hmm. it. It just it became a, it was part of a rev musical revolution, th those 60 songs, and these kind of areas are covered. You'll see a lot of those kind of areas where you detour in, in the road of country music with, yeah. with these songs. So it's very kind of like, wow, wow, I didn't know that. Or wow, I did know that, but I didn't know much more about it other than the basics. So mm -hmm. you get a really kind of a deep dive. It's a deep dive. It is a definitely a deep vibe. And I got a lot of joy out of it as I said, just to kind of see it all unfold before me because we grew up in a time where we kind of start at a certain point and go forward. We yeah. do look back. That's important. We always have to look back. But uh, those roots of uh, the yodel, Jimmy Rogers, mm -hmm. and how that kind of is interspersed throughout country music, uh, the mandolin with Bill Monroe mm -hmm. is such a huge part, the swing era mm -hmm. of you know Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys, these are really important moldings that really kind of, it's like a big, big uh, kind of, um, what do you call it when you, in art class, you get the big, uh, the big statue you're making and you're adding more <laughs> clay to it. Uh -huh. That's kind of how I, I envision because if it wasn't for the swing era, there wouldn't have been, and jazz, jazz yep. is an important part of it too. You wouldn't have the honky tonk. And if you didn't have electricity and instruments, <laughs> you wouldn't have the honky tonk. Correct. And 
So there's and, honky and, tonks. and beer and alcohol, alcoholism, which is kind sure. of a dark Topic. force. Yeah. George Jones is really talked about. Oh, uh-huh. that's awesome. And Tommy Wynette. <laughs> I mean, my gosh, it's it's a it's a soap opera in and of itself. There's 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 dark and light mm-hmm. that that is there that comes from, but it's it's really the stories, the musicianship, and uh, the coming together of different people, um, bringing people together. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, the the Bobby McGee story that they're telling here, which I haven't seen yet. But uh, how chock full uh, is this film full of? first-hand stories from sit-down interviews with some of these musicians well, over you, time that have really unique perspectives or they were one-on-one in a room with Hank Williams at one time and here's their recollection, things like that. I would say at least 70% the actual oh. people that were there. The that's, key people. That's the meat right the, there. The key people that were there. You a pretty good rate. And you'll see them pop up from time to time when they need to tell their story. It's pretty amazing in that sense. You know, obviously Ken Burns just does a fantastic job of research and bringing these people in. Uh, Roseanne Cash and Marty Stewart are predominant okay. in this one throughout. Marty Stewart especially. If Taylor Swift or Carrie Underwood or whoever the hottest girl of the moment is wants to know where they come from, they need to go all the way back to the voice of Sarah Carter because she was the first one. It's Sarah, then there's been everybody else. It's that simple. Rosen Cash, I mean, obviously, Bird's Eye View to her, her you know, father, course, and, um, but also being a female musician, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious, I, uh, as we sit here today, today's also the release of the, uh, the album by the High Women, mm-hmm. which I will only mention, which is a super group of, of four, four women out of Nashville, and they kind of came together. They are actually making somewhat of a point that, right as right now, uh, country music or uh, country radio is not playing a lot of f- female artists. The ratio of male to female artists is a little, there's an imbalance. Um, I just use like, so as we sit here today, there's still this conversation. Um, uh, country music is always in its evolving stages. You know, it's always going to be rolling around. We'll, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll play a, like, well, here's a sample of what they sound like. Cause it's, it, they sound incredible. Back to so, uh, Dave. You have uh, any questions uh, for Carl on this? Well, uh, for the man, the man who's returned from the mountain. Well, one thing I noticed, right? The one thing I noticed, I just read is uh, it, apparently the uh, the final interview with Merle Haggard is uh, is drawn upon. In this as Merle well. is seen a lot throughout this. Good. Oh, great! Introspective really gives a grand sense of not only his career but others he's intertwined with, mm-hmm. and the music business and yeah. his whole story of being just this felon on the run and then just being in contact with Johnny Cash and that changed everything. And of know? course, didn't he see Johnny Cash perform while in prison? Yeah. It's interesting yes. that, yeah, that that else can claim that. Yeah. I mean, in the arc of Merle's life is, is it, it is very interesting that it's, uh, he, at the beginning he's living, 
you know, not, not the most righteous life, obviously as a young guy, um, out there in Bakersfield and Oildale specifically, but uh, Oildale, California, that is, then he, you know, a country music concert pretty much saves him or, or gives him an alternate path. And then that, that alone would be something, but he doesn't just decide to take up country music. He decides to just completely become a monument to the power of the songwriting in that genre. It's like, he completely supersedes in a way, and 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 as I said just the other day on the he sets a, a completely new standard for how to write songs, uh, especially not just the biographical like Mama tried when in, in Mama's Hungry Eyes and we think about it, but but the 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 deep empathy required for him to write songs uh, from other people's perspectives, whether it be Oki from Muskogee uh, or um, um, or of course the one I you know holding things together is the one that just. I can't even deal with with just how how deep that very brief song is. Um, and then at one point, then he uh, learned violin just so he could do a tribute album to Bob Wills. You know, like <laughs> while he's a star. By the way, I'm going to struggle learning a very difficult instrument just for that. You know, it's like wow, talk about paying service. You know, um, and uh, yeah, it's. I think that's. Uh, I'm glad that Merle gets that that much time. It's in it. funny. I'm hearing you talk about Merle Haggard, and you're. Your, um, your, how would I say, Dwight as your as your boss? I guess. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah we'll yeah, call yeah. him that. It, you're you're practically telling the same story that. Oh, well, we <laughs> exactly. He'll he'll narrow it down to you'll see yeah, it, okay, and you'll get a sense of you know of your. Well, Dwight's exactly. certainly a big influence on how I appreciate this stuff. I mean, let's let's oh, yeah, let's yeah. not you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, I am very very lucky. Dwight uh, has a uh, you know, firsthand not just her, firsthand sort of Merle and Buck, mm-hmm. but you know, spent time with Minnie Pearl, Gene Autry. I mean, it's really incredible to be around a guy who got to meet these folks, you know, um, and 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 to to relay their story. So and, and I, I, the one thing I when I first heard this release, I'm I'm I wanted to know. I hope they give West Coast. Country music, it's it's fair shake in this thing, and of course they do. Oh, good. So, so is there a lot of regional coverage then in this film? Is it broken down by you know maybe Texas country music or West um, Coast Bakersfield sound, Nashville? Okay, Nashville is really obviously the the main main thing, uh, and California mm. uh, with Bakersfield. Yeah, uh, those are the two regions that are prominently brought more. Mm-hmm. But with Nashville, it's it's so. It's, it's inherently there. It's inherently there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, with Bakersfield, it's more of a new sound that's coming sure. in and a new shot in the arm for country music. Right. It was a response to the because at that point, country music is trying to become a very acceptable music. There's a lot of orchestration. It, things are getting much closer to what we call kind of American standards sort of things. And then this thing out of Bakersfield comes. It sounded pretty rough and tumble, and there was no lush orchestration, and there was a there was a a plainness about it and a boldness about it. I think it was, a, it, it was, it was an antidote to what was coming out of Nashville at the time, which is always healthy. It just as Willie and all the, all the Austin, the outlaw thing was also, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's very important. A regional too, antidote to what, what else mm-hmm. is going like, well, yeah, you know, <laughs> Willie really struck out trying to go to Nashville. Nashville was the roughest. It just wasn't for that's him, right. but yeah, it's very refreshing. Obviously he's had many years of success, so it's not like a big deal for him. It's just kind of one of the things he had to deal with. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, he's, you know, he's very turned out all right. He didn't change, <laughs> but uh, you know, I th- I think it brings everything together. Whether it be the women of country, mm-hmm. Patsy Cline, yeah. Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, uh, and the key players along the way that are very 
whether it's the Ralph Emery's or, or yeah. the people that are really behind the scenes yeah. that are moving the levers a. too. Rose, just, just the publishing company alone. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's why Nashville even becomes the sure. center at all. I mean, for like, I think for a couple of decades there, Cincinnati, uh, had j- just a good a shot of becoming the capital of country music. Um, or even Dallas. Or even Dallas, yeah. That's yeah. where the like, Country Music Association kind of that's felt what like they, they had to fortify because it was Nashville. And that's the breadbasket mm-hmm. for country music. Everybody saw it that way. So, yeah, so, um, yeah all these adjoining forces coming cool. together. and uh, Well, I can't I, wait to see it. This, this, is, this is great. When are you going to have 16 hours at one time? <laughs> well, not at one time. I'm going to have to piece it together on bus trips, I'm sure. The, the nice thing about PBS, they'll be rerunning it yeah, at any given true. time. So if you miss one episode, just look in the listings again. You'll be able to find it again. Um, and Is it know, streaming as well? Yes, yeah, so it'll it be, be streaming through Passport. You'll be able to get it. Okay, Passport is a service that PBS offers uh, whether, you know, a yeah. donation and then you're able to app it on your TV and then, yeah, you can watch it at any time you'd like. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. So that's, it's pretty awesome. Now, as far as the timeline, I'm just kind of curious, like where, where did it stop and, and not cover gotcha. anything beyond a certain point? I uh, like pretty much, like I said, Garth Brooks, uh, Johnny Cash's death. That's okay. probably where it is. Interesting. Ends, which is probably the best. I think that's similar to, to the, the jazz documentary that he did as well. It, by the time it got to, uh, 80s, the young ones, the Marcellus. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, there was a focus, but not a whole lot, and it didn't go too deep. Well, you have to stop at some point. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. have to edit the whole thing. Well, so, I mean, I mean <laughs> the, the Picasso the, has to be finished. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to start editing. I mean, the, the baseball one, yeah. it, it had to end at a certain point. No, because again, country music, something's coming up next. Okay, so it's, it doesn't. You have the benefit of like the Civil War documentary or Prohibition, mm-hmm. because there's a. There's a certain, there's a specific end date to those subjects, but if you're doing a documentary on radio, country music, baseball, jazz, there's no, there's no, there's no end date. There's no end. Yeah. So you got to just say, I got to stop and I got to start editing this stuff. And I think the Garth thing and Garth just becomes this one word reference to how country music embraced stadium rock. I'm assuming that's part of the angle, maybe? Yes, where because, it became you know, bigger we than life. That, um, as, as after the urban cowboy movement, uh, and before the the Garth thing, he, again, he and Shania, there's just this, they represent this 90s explosion of country music. Um, there was a little bit of a, you know, country wasn't really sure where it was going. And we actually got... Some great, great artists out of that little period. Right. We get uh, Katie Lang, Lau Love It. We get these. I don't know that they get the same. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? So, um, but then certainly by that one, you know, things went like, you know, Garth embraced kind of, he liked Kiss was his favorite. Yeah, right. Band. He was so in he, a cover band to begin with. Right. Right. So, um, so the, I, and I think that's what begets the way that country music is really is one of the biggest selling genres still right now in America. I mean, it's just, it's really, really, really big. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it was probably, I think that's probably would be the right place to end it. Um, because at least it feels as though it almost feels like, and that's how we're, that, that gets us where we are now. 
you know, it, it seems like that would make but sense. But then I think the, the theme of people questioning what country is at any given time in those previous decades, if you watch this whole series, you're probably going to learn that's just part of the equation. So beyond this Garth era, you look at country now and people are saying, oh, but that's got hip hop beats in it. Well, look back it's a few episodes and should. notice how everything sort mm-hmm. of absorbed what was happening. Yeah, at the we time. talked about that on the yeah. show. Yeah. yeah, it's funny because you look back at the the, at the Tim McGraw Nelly collaboration, which what are they doing? What <laughs> what? But it makes sense because yeah. you think about Gus Cannon's relationship with Johnny Cash. Yeah, interesting. But it, you know these right. two cultural uh, beings coming together mm-hmm. for a common purpose. Yeah, and it. It makes then it makes sense. It makes mm-hmm. real sense, you know. When well, you start and to I'd think make about a point it. too that if, if okay, so if we've just got like a, a, a current country artist. So you also say this person's twenty five years old right now, and they've got a deal. And if they grew up in America, if they're twenty five, they most likely grew up listening to a lot of hip hop music. It's been around yep. for decades now. So it's to me, it's extremely authentic to that person that the that their music would reflect that influence as well. And of course, hip hop, rap specifically. Also, guess what? Storytelling music. It's storytelling. Mm-hmm. So to me, the I and of course I'm a fan. I'm, I'm a nut because I'm always advocating for more cultural misappropriation. I think that that sort of thing is what we need more of because it helps empathy. It helps us stand in someone else's shoes. It helps our humanity. I, it would, and so to me, I was like, no, we, we need more of this crossbreeding. We need so much more, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not even that. Again, uh, any kid growing up, uh, uh, you know, coming to country music for the first time, meaning they'll just turn on modern country radio. Well, some of those beats and mixes are welcoming. It's feathering them in. It keeps the door open. It keeps the door open. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and I know country is a lot of different things at the same time and always changing, but um, how far out of the lines does this documentary go? And like, for example, the Flying Burrito Brothers and Eagles and bands like that that were certainly influenced, does it dive into like, you mentioned Janis Joplin too, where here's a, a country song that was taken on by a, a an artist that played Woodstock or whatever, you know, uh, outside genres. Um, oh, you're going to love it. <laughs> you're gonna love it uh, you said Flying Burrito Brothers and, and oh. that uh, Emmy Lou Harris will get oh, into yeah. that too uh, Graham Parsons and you, there's a section in there I'm not gonna give it away but it devotes plenty of time you know, to it you know it's funny doing that Fender Live thing on Wednesday uh, to play what Don Rich plays on Act Naturally yeah. uh, uh, Don Rich tuned down his guitar down an entire step mm. uh, and so so I did that to one of my guitars and and before we went on, when you're tuned down in whole step, there's um, a handful of Creedence Clearwater Revival tunes you can play because Fogarty would tune down an entire step. Uh, Fortunate, uh, Fortunate Sun, um, certainly, uh, and uh, Bad Moon Rising. Mm-hmm. And, and then... It, Sorry, guys. I'm supposed to be clocking out from work right now. And Bad Moon Rising. So, and then it occurred to me that, oh... Fogarty mentions Buck Owens and looking out my back door. And I, I wonder if this is where he got this drop tuning move. Interesting. And just, it was just like this little kind of, I, I, I'm sure someone's asked, hopefully someone's asked him and there should be some scholarship on this, but, or if I ever get to meet him, that's one, that's probably the only thing I'm asking him. <laughs> that drop tuning thing. Is that a Don Rich move? What's going gives? Would, <laughs> would, would, I, I want to ask this question just in general, drop tuning versus using a baritone guitar. Two different things or one? Somewhat. Uh, a baritone guitar, uh, um, 
you could say uh, uh, um, it plays an octave lower than a regular guitar, but essentially it's a matter of EQ is why it doesn't sound like a bass guitar. It doesn't carry the, the lower end uh, overtones. So you're getting the pitch of what you mostly do on a bass guitar, but it cuts through as a guitar. Now, of course you can tune the baritone in various ways, but a lot of, some folks just take a baritone, they just tune it like a regular six string guitar from low E to high E. But of course these things are moved down an octave from a regular guitar. Okay. Uh, now you take a six string guitar from standard tuning, you t tune it down a whole step. When you physically play an E major chord in first, in first position, what we hear is a D. Right. So Bad Moon Rising's in D, and learning how to play that song, I was like, you know, standard tune, D, A, G, D. But then there's a, a he's like, that's a bad moon rising. And there's this, that like, doo, 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 doo. that little guitar like there yeah. was a little bit of a kind of a, mm, that's a little awkward one. And, but it, when you're tuned down a whole step, it's a first position Scotty Moore. Like it's the, it's like the most basic little Carl Perkins move. You just move, you don't, it's, I thought, oh, and that's why it sounds low. I mean, it's like, yeah, duh. So, um, there's certainly, yeah, I, don't know, I can geek out on guitar stuff, but yes, that's, that's kind of what's happening there. Yeah. So this is awesome because I think, um, the, the musicians, the musicians are so important. They're integral to the whole thing. And we can talk all day about the Telecaster and amplification. I often and, find myself doing and, that. <laughs> you come to the right place. And it's great. You get a taste of that in the documentary too. So great. you'll, you'll, you'll be, you'll leave satisfied for <sighs> sure. What's 16 hours. What's your, what's your favorite takeaway? Gosh, not God. your impression, but like something like, like this particular part right here where this person said this or getting to see this, what, what was a striking I love when Marty Stewart plays uh, Boom and Row. She just vamps it right on the spot. No problem. Yeah. And you're just going, if I was a musician or a mandolin player, I'd just throw the thing away, man. He's so good. <laughs> He's so good, man. And really he has easy. that old Gibson, you know, uh -huh. uh, mandolin. And it's just, I don't know, it's probably from the 20s or whatever, or whatever he has. And he's playing Bill Monroe right there. It's pretty, pretty awesome. I wonder if they uh, had access to, to Marty's collection of country memorabilia. He, I was going to say, he's, again, that's why he's really one of the guys you gotta you have to refer to because he's from early on, he's been on that. And the funny thing is they told his life, you know, where he first meets Connie Smith. Mm -hmm. And he told his mom, I'm going to marry that woman. 14-year-old <laughs> <laughs> kid saying that or however old he was. Like, sure, son, whatever you say. Yeah. But that, he's a master. He really should get more credit. Because, you know, unfortunate for him, he had to go through that country music period where you had to play the game. Mm. And he was that kind of musician who could and did, but when it really came down to it, his roots were needed to show more. And obviously, you know, working with Johnny Cash and that time, that last time period and helping Johnny come back yep. from the dead... Marty played an important role. Rick Rubin, of course, Tom Petty played, played an important role. So it's great to see all this infusion coming from the rock world and the musician world and, and the camaraderie coming all together for mm -hmm. this figure. Johnny Cash is, is the figure of country music, modern country music mm -hmm. in, in that sense. He, he lived a long life, had many eras of his music. So it's great to see that too and it's interspersed throughout he comes up at one point he comes up at mm -hmm. another point and in the end so it's really awesome to see that and how it kind of just shapes and shifts along the way so very cool 
I'm really looking forward to this. Want to have a music break? Let's do it. Let's play a tune. Now, this is not a country song, but... But it's from this country. All right. Now, we've got a letter from a, a listener. Uh, it says, uh, hey, Dave and Eugene, I want to thank you for curating the Jukebox Graduate. I love your podcast and appreciate your deep interest in historical music catalogs. I collect records for my enjoyment, and it's always a breath of fresh air to hear you guys and your recommendations. Uh, also, the recent episode regarding Martin Scorsese's Rolling Thunder review film definitely threw me <laughs> off. I'm going to go back and rewatch with your perspectives now. Uh, and then this this fellow, this is Chris Lopez. He has a band called Charity Swim. And uh, he said it was okay if we played a, a song of theirs. So, Dave, what are we going to hear? We're going to hear a tune called AWOL Winnebago. And then when we come out of that, you're going to tell me what you're hearing in that. Okay. All right. Here we go. Here's Charity Swim. Costello. Do you? I do. Especially in that vocal delivery. You're right. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking second album era. It's like, and I don't really know any other singers that inflect in that Ooh, way. That's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, off um, the top of my head, but that's really a cool thing to have naturally. It's one of those things, you know? Unless you hear a second person do it, you don't think about how unique the first person really was. Right. You know, he's <laughs> like, oh, I guess it is. It's like, yeah. uh, what did I see? Um, uh, who that Bill Hader d- does his impersonation of Alan Alda. <laughs> I was like, I didn't really know Alan Alda was so quirky. Right, right. It, just, it was just always Alan Alda until someone does it. And you're like, oh my God, he does a very specific way of speaking. So cool. That was, that was yeah. That was uh, AWOL Winnebago by Charity Swim from their 2018 self-released album, Babble Numb. <laughs> and uh, their website says recommended if you like Ty Siegel, King Tough, Dinosaur Jr. I'm hearing some of that in there. Oh, yeah. King Tough. I don't know if you guys have heard them, but uh, good stuff there. I haven't. Anyway. I will now. 
Yeah. Thanks to the Jukebox graduate. No, we should we, right. we should start ra- what do we we start wrapping it up here. Yeah. What um, do, before we sign out with Carl here. We what? usually talk about uh, new things we've come across musically or what we're into because obviously based on that letter um, right. Yeah, we got, we listeners are actually paying attention to some of the stuff we're putting on their plate. So uh, one of my favorite, uh, and this is a guilty pleasure because uh, this is a very, very Velvet Underground type of tune by a new band. It's called Feels Alright by The Nude Party. It don't look good Standing in a nuclear breeze The earth had a cool negative 10 degrees But I feel alright I still have my electric light But I can't breathe the air outside It's it's as Letterman once said about I think it was about the Black Crows. This is turn the dump over and go home with a waitress rock and roll. <laughs> and uh, I heard it late at night driving home from uh, from the airport or something like that. And uh, and it just it just woke me up. And I was and it was one of those things like oh I'm so glad that there's somebody still kind of making music like this. Mm-hmm. So feels all right by the Nude Party. Another favorite record of mine right now. We're, a record that I can't get out of my head is Avant Gardner by Courtney Barnett. Do you know this? No. Okay, so so check this because she's got this very lazy delivery. I mean, I like her stuff regardless, but this record, I think this is what I keep expecting Lana Del Rey to sound like, and she, and, and it doesn't quite get me. Lana doesn't get me that way, but this record does. She has this lazy delivery, and for some reason, the way she sings has an uncanny way of of keep like I'm waiting on every next word. You know, her metaphors, I'm waiting that she's just describing what it feels like for what her throat feels like or something. And you just kind of like, what's the metaphor going to be? So that's the other one. Avant Gardner. Yeah. Courtney Barnett. Avant Gardner. And of course, I'm a sucker for a good pun. Right. Yeah. And that reminds me of uh, there's a bunch of Ziggins albums uh, that have great names like Pomona Lisa. Pomona Lisa. Ignore (laughs) Amos. (laughs) <laughs> that's right oh my god the beloved Zins. rusty never sleeps yeah. <laughs> yeah you're right oh i should check maybe maybe they wrote this one for her right um, that's uh, great no, title. so what are you listening to oh uh, no no hold on before yeah, you, get to you got carl. carl what do you got uh no i just been pulling out old records of uh, record finds in the in the dusty bin especially with the country music thing Charlie Pride. I, I found a Charlie uh, Pride record from 1968. Ooh. Charlie Pride is definitely represented in That's this fantastic. country. Great stories there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, listening to Charlie Pride. Um, gosh, what else? Um, I, I you know I I try to cover the gamut, but I'm zeroing in on the golden age of certain music. You guys probably did the Canyon um, movie. Um, did we maybe. talk about that Not much? No. Oh. So, okay. so you obviously saw that. I saw it, went to the Arclight to see cool. it when they had the, the band, band play. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that was really good. It was really good. Uh, Echo in the Canyon. Um, so I, I, there's that golden age, 65 to 67. Not that I'm focusing on that, but I pulled out some old cream um, on vinyl Mm-hmm. Um, just finding those sweet spots of records and revisiting them, you know, in that sense. So I can't give you the rundown of all of that, what I'm talking about, but, um, the psychedelic, uh, the psychedelically painted, it's hard to vanilla say Vanilla fudge. I pull out vanilla fudge <laughs> very often and iron butterfly. I, something I would never associate myself with because it's two errors ago for me or an error mm-hmm. ago. 
and we were listening to the Beatles, Santana. Yeah. That whole thing in our household at the time when it was released. Uh-huh. Um, also, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> Thank uh, you. We just, oh my God. Here is, I found a KRLA. Oh. This is before the movie came out. Oh, okay. I found a KRLA sampler from 1968. Very cool. That has Neil diamond on it anything uh-huh. that was found on that station yeah at that time but i found <laughs> if you've seen the movie i where, have where, i have, where, I have, yeah, I have. Where, where, just, you guys where, have found each other this where, is great where leo is in the in the pool after the turn of the century in the clear blue skies over germany came a roar and a thunder men have never heard like the screaming sound of a big and it's the Royal Guardsman. That's it. That was my favorite song when I was three years old. Oh, really? And it's on this this Carole radio vinyl sampler. I'm like, yes. And it's in the movie. I'm like, oh my that's God. A, that's, well, yeah, it's a, that's a, that's I love a, it. Great that Tarantino uses that song at, at that point. Um, well, I, I don't want to. Uh, anyway, so yeah, it's, it's, I, I love that he uses that song at that point. It's perfect. Because Leo's character is feeling great about himself, relatively. And just to be listening to like such throwaway pop yes. in, in his pool uh, while this other, this horrific thing is happening just mm-hmm. a few feet away. Um, and then, Dave, what are you listening to? Uh, really digging the latest Lana Del Rey record uh, called Norman Fucking Rockwell. Um, my favorite, yeah. <laughs> my favorite track on it is uh, The Mariner's Apartment Complex. This is a really consistent album all the way through. And her last three records have been really strong. And I know when like she first came out, there was sort of this consensus that, oh, she's like this rich girl. Of course, she's got this nicely produced record. There's a lot of, there's, you know, it's like a back door to this whole thing happening. But a few records in, it's like, she's really but it doesn't mean talented. It, I mean, it doesn't mean that it'll be good. I mean, that, they, that was the thing about Lenny Kravitz. Right. Well, he, came, but like, he came from a, like a mixed background of rich and richer. But, you know, that can only get you so far. Yeah. Eventually, you have to make records that last and stick around. Because there was like that, that Paris Hilton record that was made. You know what <laughs> so I'm thinking? We can, we can provide examples where all that stuff does yeah. not pay off. So I think that was the thing that people were forecasting. is like, oh, this is like, mm-hmm. who is this? It's going to be like one of those records or whatever. But it's really What's solid. The, the single... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking because it quotes, it takes the lyric, oh, Summertime. It's uh, uh, oh, yeah, G- yeah, Gershwin's yeah. Summertime. Mm-hmm. So this is, because remember the last record was Heroin, mm-hmm. and I remember asking on the show, like, she, she knows that we know about the Velvet Underground song Heroin. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm assuming, I assume that everybody knows every, like the artist knows everything about themselves. They know, you know what I'm saying? There's no truth to power here. Mm-hmm. And so I think that she's as a, as a very, I think of her in a very postmodern way because she's constantly making these references. In this case, she goes all the way back to Porgy and Bess as a reference, mm-hmm. but it's a really strong record. And, and like the last two or three records are really consistent. And yeah. I'm very pleased with that. Uh, there's a new song called not by big thief coming from their, uh, album two hands. That's coming in, uh, October, October 11th. It's their second album of this year, and uh, this track is just really infectious. Um, it, it really grabbed me by the second listen, um, so check that out. Um, also, Brian Whelan has a new single out, and some of you listeners may be familiar because he played the song on episode three of the Jukebox oh. Graduate <laughs> in our studio, uh, Rock and Roll Dream. So that's out there now. Please seek out the latest from Brian Whelan. Lastly, uh, I think, Gene, I may have told you about this on the side, but I... I I, I listened to the newest Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul record mm-hmm. uh, when it came out earlier this year, and it didn't grab me. I just thought, okay, it's it's standard Little Steven, 
you know, stuff here. But uh, then while working from home, I had uh, I had satellite radio on Sirius and mm-hmm. I put on little Stevens underground garage and I'm hearing garage rock and all kinds of you know, oldies and things like that popping up here and there. And it's just this random playlist being fed to me. So out of the context of listening to just his album start to finish, right. a song of his came on and I had to just stop what I was doing, do a little double okay. take. And it's a really long track, but it's the title track from the summer of sorcery album. And, uh, it's just stunningly gorgeous. And it reminds me, it's pulling a lot from, Land of Hope and Dreams era Springsteen mm. and Astro Weeks era Van Morrison. Oh. Wanna get lost in your festival of unlimited possibility. Won't wanna be transformed by your summer of sorcery. And if you love that stuff, check it out. It's it's really got a hold on me, and uh, that's something that I've been playing now, quite a lot. Real quickly, how medium affects the music. I know we spoke before about how because of cutting records, people had so to shorten McLaren. They had to shorten all this Mar- old Marshall McClure. Marshall sorry, McClure, yeah, Marshall McClure, <laughs> not Malcolm McLaren. Around the outside, around the Mar- outside. Of, although Malcolm probably, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, these, these long Appalachian songs, these multiverse things had to be shortened to just a couple of verses because they had to cut them to a lathe and you could, oh, right. Right. Uh-huh. The physical space on sure. the record could only hold so much. Yeah, yeah. Well now because of Spotify mm-hmm. and everything's about the number of listens, the number of, of plays. Mm-hmm. So I think we're, songs are getting shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. A seven minute song inherently within an hour can only be played so many times compared to a two true, minute song. True. So it's funny that little Steven would have a long song cause that's a very album generation thing mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. You know, uh, and I think that might be like the backlash to the shorter song. So I get more Spotify plays would be the, you know, the, the punk answer to that would be, I'm, I'm going to do like an eight minute song. And this song. is the week that tool came out with the record. Not that we're all tool fans, but they've, they defy I'm not what you're a fan, talking about. But I know how huge that is. Yeah, and the songs yeah, yeah. are long, eight it's minutes long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually that that did. Yeah, I think you can drink one of uh, Maynard's bottles of wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bundle you can pre-order. That's right. <laughs> you know, and I, I did mention Big Thief and their new song called "Not." That song was released on Spotify in two versions. One of them is an edit. So I don't know. If that, I don't know if they're keeping that in mind. Oh, you know, it's mainly cuts out a large portion of the uh, the dissonance Very solo. Cool. Yeah. And by the way, all jukebox, uh, jukebox graduate listeners, please drop us a line. Let us know what you're listening to. Turn us on to yes, some stuff. Please, please share. All right. Now let's get out of here. All right. Um, I got a plane to catch. We got. Uh, do you? Well, tomorrow. Yeah. I'm going to Nashville. I'm going to Nashville. Awesome. I'm going to play the Ryman. I got to play. Oh, have you played there before? Yeah. Awesome. Actually, first time I went to Nashville really was to play at the Ryman with, with Dwight. So oh, I've kind of got this. Oh, man. That's the, yeah. I've got what this what happens when you walk in that place? Does anything like overpower you? Like with, whoa, um, wait a second. Like, do this, the spirits come out of the woodwork? I mean, I'm just imagining all kinds of things happening. You know. Or is um, it just a place to play? <laughs> well, it's more than just a place to play. Uh, there are certain venues. I'm I'm a fan as much as anyone else. So, uh, so with the Ryman, I mean, but I am there for work. There is a show to do, and so the, that's the focus. And um, 
and um, you're not there to lollygag. You're there to no, do a job. No, but uh, but you are there to appreciate the the atmosphere. I think certainly I have to say when the audience gets in, that's kind of that's when the hum and the buzz really really happens. Although I could say that about any venue we, we play, um, I I never take for granted that that I'm there. Um, and I'm not one of, for ghosts and, and that sort of thing. But um, it, I, what I appreciate uh, about it is just understanding the, literally just the dimension of the room. So you see footage, you see photographs, you, and, you, and, and it gives you a sense of scale. Um, much like the Play It Loud exhibit at the Met does, where you, just, you, you look at Springsteen's 53 Esquire and you see pictures of it on him and it gives you ideas like, wow, oh, this guy really is a runt. You know, or <laughs> you just, it gives you a sense, it's like holding a quarter up to like a, a, a mole and you send the picture to your dermatologist. <laughs> you, know, you just gotta, <laughs> right. I gotta come up with a better metaphor. But, <laughs> but so, so something like the Ryman gives you a sense of scale. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, and I mean that literally and probably, and I, I guess I do mean that figuratively as well. So Great. Awesome. Yeah. I've, I've always curious to hear about somebody's insight, insight to that. So thank you. Yeah, you got it. This episode of the Jukebox Graduate was brought to you by Satellite Amplifiers and their new Scamp line. Yesterday's technology today. Go to SatelliteAmplifiers.com. The Jukebox Graduate would like to thank Alex Call. Many thanks for the intro at the top of the show. Again, keep your eyes peeled for the new album from American Road on Sun Valley Records. And please visit AmericanRoad.co for the very latest. Also, thanks to Chris Lopez of Charity Swim. Babble Numb is now available on Spotify, Bandcamp, CD Baby, Amazon, and other fine digital storefronts. Carl Alvarez, thank you very much for dropping in to talk about the very latest PBS presentation, Country Music, a Ken Burns film. Explore the remarkable stories of the people and places behind a true American art form. Uh, The Jukebox Graduate is available on iTunes, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Alexa, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Overcast, and more. In fact, we'd like to welcome Radio Public and Podtail to our list of podcast platforms. Wherever you listen, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Check out our companion episode playlist on Spotify. The link's on our homepage at thejukeboxgraduate.com. Uh, on Facebook, look for us at The Jukebox Graduate and on Twitter at The Jukebox Graduate. Also, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, once again, 1 800 273 8255. Let's go to the quotes. All right, Carl, you're the guest. You go first, please. There's got to be a morning after. Where does this come from? If you're a 70s movie. Disaster flick. Person. Oh, 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 Poseidon Adventure. Yes. Ding, 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 ding. ding, ding. Uh, the, the girl who sung that in the movie sadly passed away. Just passed away. That's Carol right. Lindley. Wow. Oh, good pull. Hmm. I don't know what happens when people die. Can't seem to grasp it as hard as I try. It's like a song playing right in my ear that I can't sing. I can't help listening. This is Dave Rayburn. But I'm brutalized by bass and terrorized by treble. I'm open to change my mood, but I always get caught in the middle. And I get tired of DJs. Why is it always what he plays? I'm going to push right through and I'm going to tell him to play us. Play us a slow song. I'm Eugene Edwards, and this has been The Jukebox Graduate.